hay una lucha permanente entre la Venezuela honesta y la Venezuela de los antivalores, la Venezuela de la corrupción, de las corruptelas. After months of investigation, the hammer came down. Last month, the National Anti-Corruption Police revealed alleged serious acts of corruption in state-owned oil company PDVSA. The fallout was swift. Over 50 individuals have now been arraigned. Among those arrested in the crackdown were Ugbel Roa, a lawmaker from the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, and Joslit Ramirez, the head of the National Crypto Asset Superintendents, Sunacrypt. Both are considered close associates of now former oil minister Tarek El Esami, who resigned from his post. Pedro Maldonado, the head of Venezuela Guyana Corporation, which brings together several heavy industries in eastern Venezuela, was also arrested. The charges include misappropriation of public funds, influence peddling, and money laundering. Some may even face treason charges. The alleged corruption plot has been labeled PDVSA Crypto by Attorney General Tarek William Saab in reference to the accusations that U.S. $3 billion worth of crude sales were diverted via cryptocurrency schemes. Calling the anti-corruption drive an ethical, spiritual, and moral battle, Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro said those engaged in unscrupulous behavior were betraying the values of the Bolivarian Revolution. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're looking at the issue of corruption and inflation. Suspicions of graft in the oil industry arose this year when newly appointed PDVSA President Pedro de Yechea ordered all export contracts suspended and reviewed. The sale of oil is still a major source of income for the Venezuelan government, but U.S. sanctions have greatly complicated the country's ability to sell oil on the international market, forcing the state to devise schemes to work around the U.S. blockade, such as working with intermediaries or the use of volatile cryptocurrency mechanisms, which leaves it vulnerable to abuse. According to Reuters, Venezuela's state oil company might have racked up as much as 21.2 billion U.S. in accounts receivables. However, that figure is disputed, as PDVSA has swap agreements with partners such as Iran, which provides the state oil company with condensate, crude, as well as other inputs and technicians to jumpstart pumping and refining activities in exchange for Venezuelan heavy crude cargoes. In response to the U.S. economic war, the Venezuelan government also implemented an anti-blockade law. It has helped the country survive but it has ripple effects, namely a lack of transparency. It is in these obscure spaces where corruption can flourish. But corruption is not the only consequence of the U.S. economic war against Venezuela. The country is also battling inflation, which is severely impacting the working class in the country. Though it may not seem obvious at first, when it comes to corruption and inflation, these two are also sites of class struggle. To explain, we will speak with Venezuelan economist and National Assembly member, Tony Bosa. But first, conversation with Venezuela analysis Andreina Chavez on her thoughts about the ongoing anti-corruption drive and the need to prosecute Juan Guaido for his many alleged crimes amidst this crackdown. Hi, Andreina. Welcome back to the program. It's great to have you as always. 
I want to start this conversation about the recent corruption scandal in Venezuela. It seems to me that one of the key elements of Hugo Chavez's rise was his moral authority, that he represented a movement that rejected the deeply embedded corrupt practices of the Fourth Republic. As a Venezuelan, as someone that I know is committed to the deepening of this political transformation, how did you feel when you first heard of the potential loss of billions of dollars in revenue? Do you suspect that it's going to have a demoralizing effect, or do you think the government's response is enough to avoid it? Hi, Jose Luis, and thank you for inviting me. And I think those are really good questions, and I appreciate that you want to talk about that. So these past few days, we have seen this major anti-corruption operation uh, inside the oil industry and even inside the justice system. And like you said, we're talking about potentially billions of dollars that the nation has lost in the last three years. And this is a network that involved government officials, executives from the oil company PDVSA, and even a whole bunch of business people. And so far, we have seen like dozens of people being detained and being prosecuted. So, you know, on one side, I think most Venezuelans, including me, uh, have applauded that the Venezuelan government is finally doing something about this and is finally cleaning these important institutions, such as the oil industry of people who are destroying them by stealing. So I think this anti-corruption operation is seen as a good thing and is welcomed. And I think that it shows that the government is willing to accept that they have made mistakes and that they have a lot of issues they need to solve when it comes to their economic policies and the justice system, and maybe that they are willing to fix it. But you know, on the other side, there's also this deep sense of demoralization across the country because it seems like our most important institutions, like the oil industry, are being handled by people that have no values, no socialist values, no commitment with the Bolivarian process, no sense of community, or that, you know, they don't even care about the suffering of the people when we are going through an imperialist economic blockade. So instead, these people, these people who are handling our most important institutions, they have used these many difficulties created by the U.S. blockade to steal from the country. So this is something that really creates a lot of indignation in Venezuelan society. And as you were saying before, I think that definitely one of Chavez's main battles and principles was fighting against corruption. So that's what I think it is unacceptable that we are here more than 20 years later and we're still seeing corruption scandals one after the other one and that are just as bad as the ones we had before Chavez came to power. The only difference I think the only difference now is that people are being prosecuted for corruption and that didn't happen before. But that doesn't change the problem that it is causing a lot of damage to our, to our country. And, you know, and I also think that corruption is not something that you suddenly discover one day. So the fact that this continues to happen today shows that the government lacks any kind of preventive action or mechanism to prevent corruption and protect the country's income. And it shows that the government is not listening to the Venezuelan people 
because we know that there have been people, especially workers from the oil industry, denouncing these shady operations and they have been ignored. And in some very extreme cases, they have been put into prison. They have, they have been jailed. So, and also, you know, this has, these last few years, uh, the Venezuelan people, especially the ones that live in Caracas, we have seen like this sudden explosion of expensive stores, expensive vehicles, new buildings in these wealthy sectors of Caracas. And we are also seeing like some government officials that are displaying a lifestyle that doesn't really make sense in this economy. So people have noticed these things and they have sounding the alarms. But again, nobody listened, like no authority pay attention to this. And only now they are realizing that part of these wealthy businesses and lifestyles were actually the result of this corruption scandal, you know, money laundering. So, yeah, I think if you take into consideration all of these, you know, from people denouncing corruption for years to the government's late response to this problem, I think it's easy to understand why most Venezuelans, um, and especially working class Venezuelans, feel demoralized right now. So you have to understand that people have to hear this news about billions of dollars being stolen while they have spent years with very low wages in a dollarized country, having to work three or three jobs to be able to afford all the necessities, all these while enduring uh, Washington's economic sanctions. So, you know, it, it is hard. So we welcome the anti-corruption operation, but what we want is for the government to do something to avoid these things to continue to happen. You know, because once you hear something like that, like they stole three billion of dollars or maybe more, it is impossible not to think, you know, how many houses could we have built with those three billion dollars that were stolen? How many more? How many equipment or medicine could have been bought for hospitals? How many schools could have been fixed? You know, how many how many problems could have been solved with that amount of money that went to someone's pocket? So I think at the end of the day, people feel that more could have been done to prevent this situation. It's interesting. I saw a tweet from the Minister of Communes and Social Movements, Jorge Arriaza, who, in light of this corruption scandal, said the following, quote, The best strategy to eradicate corruption is the comprehensive and transversal incorporation of the organized people in all phases of public management and at all levels of government, end quote. Now, you mentioned in your previous response here that, that maybe there are some bad actors in key posts. So do you think that perhaps this moment with this indignation that you're describing, could it be a turning point for the Bolivarian grassroots to assume more direct control of the economy? And at the same time, you know, we've also seen people develop creative ways to survive this U.S.-led economic war. Can you talk to us about some of these efforts that you've seen of people being creative in their responses to the challenges? Of Venezuela today. Yes, I also saw the Minister for Communes proposal and I thought it was really interesting, like a good idea. And people were sort of responding to that and saying that they also thought it was a good idea. Other people thought it was impossible to do. So basically his proposal, like you said, is to incorporate the organized people in all phases of public management. And, and I do think it is something to consider. And the way I see it, the idea will be to have communities exercise social control inside our institutions, inside our industries, 
So people will be like guardians, you know, like overseeing operations and the management of the country's resources and making sure that nobody is stealing anything. And in all honesty, I trust our people. I trust our Chavista organizations that have campesinos, that have school teachers in them, more than any government officials. So I think this is a good idea. And I think the Venezuelan government should consider doing something like this. However, um, I don't see this happening. And I don't see it happening because Venezuela has a political system that is based on leadership. You know, it, it is based on on a political party and leaders that made the decisions. So incorporating the community, community leaders in public institutions, I think it would require like reshaping the way these institutions work. And although we could do it, I see it as something that it, 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 will, it will need some time to develop, but it is a good idea. And about your second question, I mean, yes, Venezuela has seen many new experiences to try to leave behind like this capitalist economic model that basically uh, it doesn't really work in our favor in favor of anybody so and this began before the u.s sanctions you know um since the beginning of the bolivarian process venezuela have seen like all these popular organizations such as the communes that have created an alternative economic model that is based on solidarity, based on community, based on equality, based on socialist values. People from these organizations not only have like collective ownership of the means of production, but the entire community oversees the income that they make. They and they make sure that it is distributed equally among them. These these organizations that were created, like I said before, the U.S. sanctions. And they have been able to survive precisely because they practice self-production and they have socialist values. Um, so definitely the government could, could learn something from these organizations because this is the way you eradicate corruption. Uh, but on the other hand, we also have a new kind of uh, experience in Venezuela of people trying to survive these difficult economic times. And that is the phenomenon, which is entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is like, it basically began because people started using like a skill that they had, like baking, for example, to make extra money aside from their regular jobs. But the phenomenon, the phenomenon of entrepreneurship began to grow when it became a sort of like a government slogan. You know, now we have like a, apps on state television and we have politicians calling everyone to create their own businesses in order to increase their income and you know in theory there's nothing wrong with this people people can have their own businesses and and it is something that can that helps people solve some of their economic problems but it does not replace the need for decent wages for social benefits for all working class Venezuelans, especially, you know, the public sector workers, especially school teachers, nurses, et cetera, and et cetera. And the problem that I feel that is, uh, I mean, the biggest problem with this phenomenon of entrepreneurship for me is that this, this is a system that is based on individualism and competition, and these are capitalist values. 
And we are supposedly a country that is trying to create a socialist model, a socialist economic model that benefits the community and not just a few. So, yeah, I think that even though it began as a method of survival for the people, I think now it has become like, like a government slogan, like you need to open your own, your own business so you can survive in this economy. And we are ignoring something very important, which is the need to increase wages in Venezuela. Yeah, I think it's healthy to try to think of crises in a dialectic way as a moment of opportunity as well. It sounds like there's certainly a lot of that happening in Venezuela right now. And I'm hopeful that more good things can come out of this dark episode that the country is experiencing. So I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to close talking about a recent article you wrote for Venezuela Analysis. And you covered some sort of cognitive dissonance that some Venezuelans can feel watching these scenes of the anti-corruption drive of people being paraded in these orange jumpsuits over these allegations. Meanwhile, self-proclaimed interim president Juan Guaido remains free. And in that piece you wrote, quote, from creating a parallel illegal government to calling for U.S. sanctions and attempting to foster foreign interventions, Guaido has committed serious crimes worthy of life imprisonment. The failed military push of April 30th, 2019, even saw oligarch coup leader Leopoldo Lopez escaping house arrest and fleeing the country. While the thwarted mercenary invasion in 2020, known as Operation Gideon, included the assassination effort of President Maduro. If the above is not sufficient for the so-called politician to stand trial, then perhaps the plundering of Venezuelan assets abroad will finally convince the proverbial jury, end quote. It's a pretty powerful couple of lines there from you. So I want to ask, why would now be a good time to finally prosecute Guaido for his many alleged crimes? I think Guaido should have been prosecuted the same day he proclaimed himself interim president, just because that was a crime. So that would have been a very good time to do it. But, you know, there have been plenty of good times to prosecute Guaido because he has committed one crime after another one. And he has supported and called for more sanctions against Venezuela, adding to the suffering of the Venezuelan people. So I think any time is good enough to prosecute Guaido. Like three years ago, two years ago, today, tomorrow, any time. <laughs> And, and yeah, so for me, it's like seeing all these people who are being prosecuted for, for stealing money from our country, from our oil industry in times of an economic blockade, it, it was wonderful to see, but it was also at the same time, I was thinking, okay, yeah, but what about people who are calling for sanctions against our country? Why aren't, aren't those also being prosecuted? I think everyone was thinking the same. So the problem is that Guaido is Washington's puppet politician. Even though he's not interim president anymore, he continues to be Washington's puppet politician. And from the moment he appeared in, in 2019 as the so-called interim president, Venezuela received threats from US officials that they will escalate the economic war against the country if Guaido was ever prosecuted. So, yeah, I, I suppose that was the reason. But, and you know, although the interim government has ended, I also believe that the Maduro government is convinced that the negotiation process with the Guaido position, you know, the, the talks that they were having in Mexico, I think the government thinks that these talks could eventually lead to some good news, that, you know, like the release of billions of dollars from frozen bank accounts, 
or maybe to receive more licenses for international companies to trade Venezuelan oil. So I think that's the hope that if they continue these talks with Guaido, you know, if they let him free and they continue talking to the Guaido opposition, that maybe some sanctions relief will come. But if history has taught us anything about the U.S. empire is that they are not going to remove sanctions against Venezuela or any other country unless they get exactly what that, what they want, which is in this case to overthrow the Maduro government and to have Guaido or any U.S.-friendly politician as the president, whether they win an election or not. So I think Washington will continue with the economic sanctions against Venezuela, whether Guaido, whether Guaido is in prison or not. So I think it's time to prosecute him and you know, deliver some justice to the Venezuelan people. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. You know, I said previously that I didn't expect that the U.S. government would lift sanctions anytime soon because, well, that would improve the economy very quickly. And obviously that would favor the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. And I think the proof is the fact that this $3 billion that was agreed to at the negotiating table between the hardline opposition and the government still hasn't been released because they know that that will actually go to meet the very urgent needs of Venezuelan population. And they don't want to give any favors to Maduro or the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. So I'm inclined to agree. I think at the end of the day, they're going to do whatever they want. We might as well go after this guy for the very real crimes he appears to have committed. So thank you so much for joining us, as always. Really good analysis. Always really grateful to have you here on the program. Yo me indigno mucho, déjeme decirle, frente a la corruptela de gente que le dimos toda la confianza y terminaron robando al pueblo en circunstancias tan difíciles. In our next segment, we will speak with Venezuelan economist and National Assembly member Tony Bosa on the links between corruption and the U.S. blockade, the inflation crisis, and solutions that put the working class first. In a TV interview, you commented, quote, not everything is the fault of the blockade, that allegedly $3 billion have been lost. That's not the fault of the blockade, end quote. The impact of the blockade has been terrible and cannot be hidden. But at the same time, it seems to me that there is a tendency within the government to blame the blockade for everything and justify certain policies, as well as shut down debate. Is there a relationship between the conditions imposed by sanctions and the proliferation of corruption schemes? How can the situation be corrected? Efectivamente, el hecho de que el país haya sido bloqueado, efectivamente, es uno de los países que ha sido sancionado de forma... Indeed, the fact that the country has been blockaded, this is one of the countries that's been sanctioned, of course, illegally, violating all international regulations. Because they're not sanctions for the violation of some agreement, some contract between countries, or imposed by some multilateral organization. Instead, they are unilateral, coercive measures from the U.S. violating all legal norms, taking advantage of its supremacy in terms of control over the international financial system, above all, what they call the dollar system, the system of transaction validation mechanisms, such as the SWIFT platform. This is a messaging platform, but in practice, it is a mechanism for validating transactions, blocking hindering transactions to countries that the United States wants to harm, where they want to stoke conflict. And the country has felt it in its economy, in its daily existence. These types of measures, they're totally and absolutely outside the law, not covered by any legal mechanism or international law, but are acts of war that the U.S. applies to several countries, including Venezuela. 
Now, with this blockade in place, what happens is that the country has had to react. All the situations that normally took place in terms of diplomatic, commercial, financial, and other relations have become more complicated. The blockade is an obstacle that is quite difficult to overcome. These attacks, called sanctions or unilateral measures, affect any company, natural or legal person, who tries to engage in business with our country, government, or citizens, and they're negatively affected in their commercial, financial, and other relationships. This has actually happened since the sanctions imposed against Venezuela have been extended to those countries, companies, and people who dealt in some way with our country. This, of course, creates a problem that forces triangulations, financial engineering, in order to be able to make transactions that are under normal circumstances wouldn't be so complex. However, in situations of war, such as Venezuela's case, any transaction becomes complicated. For example, selling oil has had to be done at a discount. Intermediaries come into play. Triangulation has been necessary. Crypto asset mechanisms have been used. The National Constituent Assembly created an anti-blockade law in the last legislature to protect the country, which, although it seems necessary, also creates legal vacuums, obscures budgetary relations, and the use of public goods. As expected, this lack of transparency is also a breeding ground for corruption, hiding information and managing information for individual purposes, especially for embezzlement. These acts of corruption that harm public assets are serious. An example is the latest case that's come to light regarding the loss of a tremendous amount of resources. At least $3 billion is being talked about in the most public and notorious case, which is an astronomical figure when compared to the $2 billion that UBS Bank used to acquire Credit Suisse, the second largest bank in Switzerland. This is the magnitude of the fraud committed in Venezuela. And of course, although it's not directly related to the blockade and sanctions, it's influenced by this context because it's precisely a product of that anti-blockade legislation. It may seem logical because we're a country under attack. We've had war declared against us, and a war undermines our stability, industry, normal life, politics, social aspects, and so on. It also creates these situations that enhance corruption, illegality, and the development of entrenched mafias and public bodies, making the management of finances and public operations less transparent, as is the case with the oil industry, for example. Similar situations are also mentioned in the mining arc or other basic industries, as well as sugar mills. There is a practice of opacity in the management of public accounts, which could be justified by the war and blockade that the country is facing, but is also due to the degradation of public institutions. We're talking about the attorney general's office and the general comptroller's office that must address this situation. The work that the president and the attorney general have undertaken to curb and put a stop to the investment of at least $3 billion of the nation's funds is important. The total might be greater, and the relevant authorities will determine the extent of the damage, in material and social terms. However, the damage that's been inflicted upon the country is immeasurable, not to mention the demoralization that those who have supported and continue to support the revolution must be feeling right now. But situations like these end up generating mistrust in the performance of the public institutions, and these doubts are logical. The way we emerge from this crisis will greatly affect 
not only in the future of the revolution, but also in how Venezuelans can relate to each other and respect public matters and the public wealth, because that's what's at stake. At the end of the day, the damage caused by this despicable act of corruption is immense. Therefore, I believe that what happens today, the way institutions respond, will determine a lot about the future of the country in terms of politics and the exercise of public service. Es inmenso y por eso creo que lo que hoy acontezca, la forma como respondan las instituciones, va a determinar mucho cuál va a ser el futuro de la patria en términos de la política y de todo el ejercicio de la función pública. You are part of a group that has advocated for the need to index wages. For those who may not be familiar with the concept, how would you explain it briefly? And how would it help address this growing inequality? Un grupo de personas, algunos economistas, otros a group of people, including economists, social scientists, and professors such as Pascualina Curcio, a professor at Simón Bolívar University, Juan Carlos Valdez, a specialist in tax law, Arlex Gómez, also a university professor, Omar Muñoz, a postgrad professor at the University of Zulia, and myself, have been promoting the idea of intervening in the country's economy through a mechanism of indexation for several years. This could be done through the use of an indexed currency or a similar mechanism to the one used in Brazil in the 93-94 period by the Minister of Finance at that time, Fernando Enrique Cardoso. This idea was based on studies carried out by a group of academics from the Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro, including economists André Lara Arcende and Percio Arila who had been working for a decade on the possibility of creating a pegging mechanism to correct the disindexation that occurs in economies affected by hyperinflation. When a country enters a hyperinflationary process, what takes place is a price war, driven by actors who have the power to set those prices. Industrialists, traders, and price setters who have the power to adjust the price of their goods through a mechanism that some economists call rational, adaptive expectations. In other words, a calculation of expected inflation is made in those who have the ability, as well as the support of institutions, to simply circumvent regulations and laws, adjust the price of their goods at an inflationary rate that is expected. Moreover, the increase in these prices is not only an adaptation to expected inflation, but it also fuels and ultimately turns it into an inertial inflation that in many cases becomes hyperinflation, meaning a monthly inflation rate that exceeds 50%. So these mechanisms are generated in an indexed economy, in an economy with hyperinflation, where there's an overall inflationary environment. Those actors who have the power to index, that is, to ensure that their goods can have prices that keep up with the inflation rate, both in terms of proportion, in terms of time scale, that is, of tightening, to use the English term, that is indexation which is to bring the value of goods to the levels established by a national consumer price index. Let's say inflation registers 20%, commodities also grow by 20%. And sometimes with this mechanism of adapted rational expectations, the inflationary targets established end up being higher than what would probably happen without these mechanisms. This very same mechanism of adaptive expectations becomes a driver, catalyst, an enhancer of inflationary environments and generates much more inflation. 
When this happens, some actors and factors are left behind. For example, the public budget. Another example is the salaries of public and private workers. But the banking sector, like salaries and the public budget, cannot be indexed in the same way as commercial and industrial capital. They simply call their customers, tell them to increase the price of goods, and raise the price of X merchandise by so much, and to the Y merchandise by so much, thus driving up these prices and adapting to inflationary situations. The bank cannot do this until it can create a norm that allows it to do so. In the case of Venezuela, the central bank of Venezuela created an arm in 2017 to index a portion of credit, only a portion. But as of January 19, 2021, it created a new resolution that extended credit indexation to the entire credit portfolio. What does this mean? That a person or corporation who applies for a loan, when they receive the loan in local currency, in the case of a Venezuela and Bolivars, let's say 100 Bolivars, they will not pay that amount that we normally call the principal plus interest. It will not be 100 bolivars plus interest. No, it will be as many bolivars as determined by the inflation that deteriorates the purchasing power of the bolivar. And how is this calculated? Through an indexed accounting unit, the same one applied in Brazil with the real plan that is being implemented in Venezuela in both public and commercial private banking. So anyone who applies for a loan has to pay it in terms of indexed units using a unit of credit value and a mechanism called the investment index. What does this mean? Essentially, when a load is granted, its value is calculated in terms of foreign currency, and each time a payment is made to repay the loan or pay the principal of debt service, the interest, the amount of bolivars necessary to maintain the same amount of foreign currency is adjusted. This means that there is an adjustment to the exchange rate, which is also a mechanism to keep up with inflation. This is what happened in Venezuela in March 2022 when this rule was adjusted due to an increased interest rates but the condition of loan indexation was kept in pace. All credit portfolios in Venezuela are indexed in such a way that the borrower is also obligated to index the price of their goods in order to be able to pay back the loan. If they fail to do so, they will not be able to pay off the loan, and the collateral they pay up to secure the loan will likely be seized. To put it differently, banks also keep up with inflation in their products, which are mainly loans through a formal mechanism that has already been established through a central bank resolution that applies to the credit value unit and the investment index. So what are we proposing? We are proposing that salaries also be indexed. Why? Because in our country, there is already a de facto indexation as a norm in the case of banks and a de facto in the case of industrialists and retailers. So our society is already indexed. We are not proposing to index society because society is already indexed. The economy is already indexed, but in an unequal fashion by each actor who index their goods according to their power to interfere in or intervene in the market. But others are left behind. For example, the public budget. Although some adjustments have been made in public services, some rates and tariffs have been indexed. In other words, there are already some factors in the public sector that have been indexed, but the budget itself and salaries are not indexed. So what is the proposal we put forward? The proposal is similar to Brazil's Real Plan, the use of an indexed accounting unit to allow public and private salaried worker salaries to not be expressed in bolivars, but expressed in that indexed accounting unit. 
Although at the time of receiving their salaries, the workers will be paid in the official currency, which is the Bolivar. Their salary is the salary of each Venezuelan will be measured in value of a credit union, an indexed value unit such as the one already being used by the banking sector. This is what we are proposing. En valor de una unidad de crédito, una unidad de valor indexado, tal como se le está aplicando a la banca. Es decir, ya eso se está utilizando en la banca. Eso es lo que estamos planteando. An important piece of information about the Venezuelan economy is the percentage of the gross domestic product that is accumulated by capital. In your interview with Venezuelan Analysis, you mentioned that this quote-unquote slice of the pie was 31% in 2014, but may have increased to 60% currently. How is this related to economic policies? What are some of the mechanisms that have facilitated this increased accumulation by the bourgeoisie or the capitalist class? La tercera pregunta tiene que ver precisamente con lo que sucede en una economía cuando hay procesos inflacionarios. Si bien el valor lo viene que se producen Your question is precisely about what happens in an economy during an inflationary process. Although the value of the goods produced in the productive process may remain the same, inflationary processes change the distribution matrix because nominal values change. While the value of goods does not change, since value is not the same as price, the share that each factor receives from the value created in production does change. It often happens that, as warned by Karl Marx in the book Wages, Price, and Profit, using the expression that Citizen Weston uses, the bowl of soup may be of the same size, it is not so in reality, but let's suppose that the size of the product remains the same, gross domestic product. However, the size of the spoon with which the soup is eaten changes. In other words, the bourgeoisie tends to take advantage of inflationary moments to increase their profits simply by increasing their share of the product that it's already created, of the value already created, at the expense of what? At the expense of wages, of reducing the share that corresponds to wages, as shown by Professor Pasqualina Curcio using data from the Venezuelan Central Bank. In the case of Venezuela, between the years 2014 and 2017, the years this data was available, it was calculated that the surplus of exploitation, which is the percentage of GDP that corresponds to the profits of the bourgeoisie, increased from 31% in 2014 to 50% of the GDP in 2017. On the other hand, the share allocated to the payment of wages for employees the remuneration of wage earners decreased from 36% of GDP gross domestic product in 2014 to 18% in 2017, meaning it was reduced in half. It is likely that this situation is even more unequal today. I would dare to say that the share allocated to capital remuneration, i.e. exploitation surplus, is around 60%, and the share allocated to wage remuneration is probably around 10%, because there are other components that are involved the state, and others. What's happening? Juan Noyola Vasquez, a Mexican economist from the 1950s who later participated in CEPAN, the World Bank, and ended up becoming an advisor to Che Guevara, explained that inflation is an expression of class struggle because inflation doesn't arise on its own like a disease, like a virus that someone catches when they encounter someone who transmits an infection to them. On the contrary, inflation is a struggle, it's a fight, because capitalists based on the same value created, want to have a larger share of it. How can they do that? By raising prices. Prices don't increase value. They increase capitalist share of the value already created. And of course, a wage earner can't keep up at the same pace, so they lag behind, as demonstrated by Professor 
Pasqualina Curcio data from the Venezuelan Central Bank. The product may be the same, it can even increase, or it could be that the gross domestic product may decrease, but the capitalist share increases due to the fact that they can keep up with inflation by indexing the price of their goods. On the other hand, the wage earner cannot do the same. And even if the product remains the same, or as I mentioned earlier, it may grow or even decrease as it effectively happened in Venezuela, the capitalist share grows, their proportion grows, the proportion corresponding to wages decreases because profit grows at the expense of wages and wages grow at the expense of profit. This is demonstrated in a book written by Karl Marx called Wages, Price and Profit. And of course, this book is still relevant today. This book explains that after an inflationary process, production can be recovered, but the distribution matrix becomes much more unequal and it becomes structured, a structural fact that is difficult to reverse, requires state intervention to reverse course, because the market alone will not change a matrix that already favors the capitalist sector and shortchanges the labor sector. If it can be maintained over time, capitalists will keep it that way. And the only entity that can intervene to correct this inequality is the state. How can it be done? There are various mechanisms, as Professor Pasqualina Curcio has explained, by restoring lost liquidity. Real liquidity is destroyed due to the increase in prices. As prices increase, the means of payment become insufficient. For every 100 bolivars that were circulated three years ago, there were at least 66 bolivars of liquidity or means of payment. Today, this is a tiny percentage. It is now less than 10%. So the state can recover liquidity. Where can it be restored? In the factor that has lost purchasing power, which is wages. On the other hand, another source of resources can be the sale of foreign currency. When foreign currency is sold to the private sector, the bolivars collected from the sale of foreign currency appear in the consolidated liquidity, known as M2 index, according to economists, and then they seem to be sterilized by the Central Bank of Venezuela. When sterilized, the Central Bank turns them into zero, that is, it removes them from the economy. The value of a good, in this case oil, from which foreign currency is obtained, which is what is called global money, this is money that can be exchanged for real goods in the international market, what economists call tradable goods. Now, this is not done because by simply converting it into local currency, the central bank sterilizes it, which is completely legal and within the norm, but it removes a resource from the economy that could be available to the executive power to intervene in reality and attempt to restore a more equitable distribution matrix, which inflation has, of course, distorted, making it highly unequal, to the point that wages in Venezuela are currently the lowest on earth creating tremendous inequality and social unrest that the state must address. ...de todo el orbe terrestre, y eso por supuesto crea una desigualdad terrible y crea un malestar social terrible que el Estado debe atender. That's our program for today. For more on the issues explored, check out episode 13 on solidarity versus sanctions. Be sure to visit VenezuelaAnalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram, and of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. It really helps us out. We'll end today's episode with the song, Hay que aligerar la carga, by Ali Primera. Boom.
busca al obrero en la fábrica. Dale la mano al obrero. Dile que la lucha es larga. Que hay que aligerar la carga. Para trochar el camino. El mundo que él se soñó. Dile que lo que él produce. Engorda al explotador Y qué pasa con el gringo Que jode a mi pueblo Va a ver que luchar Y qué pasa con el gringo Que jode a mi pueblo Va a ver que luchar Busca el cura de parroquia No busques al cardenal dile que la lucha es larga que hay que aligerar la carga que la misa de domingo con pueblo libre es mejor dile que en la sacristía haremos la Dios no se arrecha que él está contento con revolución. Dile que Dios no se arrecha que él está contento con revolución. Enséñame el camino, enséñame el camino pues. Enséñame el camino, enséñame el camino pues. Sé que hay un enemigo es el imperialismo ya lo venceré. Sé que hay un enemigo, es el imperialismo, ya lo venceré. Que con la lucha no más, la miseria se va. Con la lucha no más, es que el yanqui se va. Con la lucha no más, es que el yanqui se va. Con la lucha no más, la miseria se va. La 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 es que el yanqui se va. La 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 con la lucha no más. Sé que hay un enemigo, es el imperialismo, ya lo venceré. Sé que hay un enemigo, es el imperialismo, ya lo venceré. Que con la lucha no más, la miseria se va. Con la lucha no más, es que el yanqui se va. Con la lucha no más, la miseria se va. Con la lucha no más, es que el yanqui se va. La 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 es que el yanqui se va. La 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 con la lucha no más. Busca al obrero en la fábrica. Busca al que labra la tierra, busca y explícale a la madre, busca al ciego de la calle, dile que la lucha es larga, que hay que aligerar la cosa. 